So I know a lot of people struggle wondering, like, what's my purpose in life? We've all had that question kind of, Hannah, what is my purpose? Why do I exist? I'm so grateful that Jesus answers the big questions of life like that. He answers that. He takes the guesswork out of it. If you're wondering today what your purpose is, I actually know it. And I say that humbly, not in, in pride, because the same purpose that is on my life is on your life and every human being God ever created. Jesus said that the purpose of humanity is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love our neighbor as ourselves. And those two commandments are intertwined to make the purpose of humanity. So whether someone knows it or not, believes it or not, doesn't matter. That's why God created us. He's a, he's a God of relationship. Relationship with Him and with, with one another through Him. Another buzzword that sometimes gets confusing in the church is the word calling. Like, what is God calling me to do? What has God, what's my calling on my life? I believe that your calling is the unique way God wired you to express love for Him and love for one another. We don't have the same calling. We have the same purpose. But it's, it's, it's us praying and learning about ourselves, how God wired us, our life's experiences, make up this unique way God wants us to express love, love for Him and love for one another. Often we get caught up in our vocation or what we do for a living or the season of life that I'm in as, is this my calling? And many people work jobs that they absolutely hate. And you're like, I don't feel called to do this. Well, you're, maybe you're not. And, and the bottom line is, that's just the way you're providing for yourself and for your family. That's the way you're, you're getting to pay the bills. And I call that, that part of, of this understanding purpose and calling your assignment. So whatever season of life you're in, it's an assignment season. And God can change your assignment as he sees fit, how and when. My, my calling is not to be the pastor of Novation Church. It is my assignment right now. God can change that when he wants to. I don't want him to. I love what I get to do. But it's, it's my calling is this, if I sold cars for a living or if I worked at King Supers or I played second base for the Rockies, which could happen, <clears throat> um, I think I could hit at least still. But anyway, I don't want to get off track here. In all seriousness, that's my assignment. So who you are, your calling is how God wired you. So not what you do for a living. And I believe when we understand purpose, calling, and assignment, you will now understand your life's mission. God's mission for your life. And I think that becomes really good news in a a world that feels purposeless. And like, what am I doing here? What's, what is any of my life amounting to? I think I've got some really good news for you today to take home. Um, as Christians, I think we need to see our lives as a short-term mission trip. Many of us have gone on short-term missions trips where, to the Dominican Republic where you leave home 
to go to a place that's not your home to go and serve and share Jesus and, and love people and share the gospel, but then you come home and you go back to, to, to your world. Well, that's the way I believe God wants us to see this short little life all of us have been given. You get one crack at life. It's never too late to find your life's mission and fulfill it. It's never too late. I don't care how, how old you are or how young you are. Especially young people, though, find your life mission in purpose, calling, and then in these assignments, whether you're in school and it's the next dead-end job or a part-time job, just keep pursuing God's life mission for you. Um, we're in a series called Not Ashamed, and we're taking the Apostle Paul's word in Romans 1 where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Well, today we're in chapter 10 of Paul's letter to the Romans. And as I talked about last week, 9, 10, and 11 are, they're, uh, it's pretty theologically the deep end of the pool. Remember I said we should like put arm floaties on and like you get into a pool, you don't want to drown. This is the deep end of the pool, but I've been asking the Lord to help me to break this down in a way that we all can take something away from it and that we're not just at some high intellectual theological way, but how does this apply for you and me today, a letter that was written 2,000 years ago? And I've been titling this little series within a series, Our Roots. Last week was Our Roots and Our Salvation. This week is Our Roots and Our Mission. That's what I see in, in Romans 10. Why the word roots? Well, after the first eight chapters of Romans, where Paul gives this incredible understanding deep dive into what the gospel is, he shifts gears to kind of this um, question that might be going on in the, the minds of his readers about, well, what about the Jewish people? Jesus was Jewish. Salvation uh, is from the Jews out of the very mouth of Jesus. Out of the womb of Israel comes Jesus and the gospel. And Paul is, and a lot of the, the Jewish people most rejected Jesus as the Messiah, because they couldn't see him. And Paul is wanting his readers, because Paul himself is Jewish, he wants them to know God has not forgotten the Jewish people. God hasn't forgotten anybody. That's the good news. God hasn't forgotten anybody. So what I want to do, under three simple points, and, and, and take on chapter 10, is I want to answer this question. What is it going to take to fulfill your life mission and the mission of the church? What do you and I need to understand? What do you and I need to know to fulfill our life mission? You individually and then us corporately as his church. And the first one is this. We need to live with compassion. We need to live with compassion. You're going to see that in Paul's words, his compassion for his kinsmen who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah and how they missed it. He had compassion on them, not judgment. He had compassion. Listen to what he says. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, his kinsmen, is for their salvation. 
For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, the law of Moses, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes of the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who performs them will live by them. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Follows. Do not say in your heart who will go up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. That in part is from the amazing mind of the Apostle Paul quoting Moses and, and seeing Christ fulfilling things in the words of Moses. But where I think we need to camp is on his compassion for his people. He had a deep compassion on his unbelieving kinsmen. And so let's, let's ask the question, why did the Jewish people as a whole, because not everyone rejected Jesus, why did they as a whole not see Jesus as the Messiah? It's because they were looking for a general, a war-type Messiah that was going to come and overthrow Rome and let Israel be a nation again. That's what they were looking for. Well, Jesus came humble. Jesus came um, with, with a, a message about loving your enemies. And they're going, what are you talking about? Love my enemies. They, they oppress us every day. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. That's so counterintuitive, right? We want to punch our enemies in the face. We want revenge, we want justice to be served. That's not in our, it, that, that doesn't come natural. But it does to God. It does to Jesus. And we're following him, not the ways of this world. So they couldn't see him because he wasn't a David-like general. But why do people today reject Jesus? Most of the time, it's because of Christians. It's because of people who say, that they follow Jesus, but their life and their behavior and their, their judgment doesn't seem to follow the way of Jesus. There's a guy that some of us met last time we were in Israel in 2019, and his name is Moshe, which is Hebrew, the Hebrew way of saying Moses. And he owns this little shop in the old city. And so when he gets a group that are touring Israel, that we went into his shop, and he sat down, and he talked to us. You guys remember, remember Moshe? And he told us a lot about Hebrew culture, his upbringing, and he kind of wanted to address, I guess, what he felt maybe was the elephant in the room of, of why doesn't he see Jesus as the Messiah, because he's the Messiah of the Jews and the Gentiles. And Moshe gave a little bit of biblical explanation. He knew the New Testament pretty well, but it wasn't really biblical or theological reason that he didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. He said, growing up in Canada, as a Jew, Christians would throw rocks at him, pick on him, treat him poorly. And he just came to the conclusion that if this is what is produced by, by their Messiah, then he, he can't be, be real. Doesn't that break your heart a little bit? Yeah. Well, I 
you think about that even more in the world that, that we live in, the damage we can do <clears throat> in our life towards people by how we treat them. When we see the brokenness of the world, when we see the brokenness of the world we live in, or people who, who don't believe like us, don't value what we value, don't think like us, here's a tough question to ask ourselves. Is my gut reaction compassion or is it judgment? We've all been there. I so want my response to be compassion and not judgment. I do. And that's following Jesus. We will learn how our first gut instinct is compassion rather than, than judgment. And Matthew 9, it's not on your notes, Matthew 9, 35 and 36, verse 35 says that Jesus went about healing the sick, casting out demons, doing good, doing Jesus things as he walked the earth. And in verse 36, it says, Jesus saw the crowds of people that they were harassed and that they were like sheep without a shepherd. It says he had compassion. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. That's his, his, he didn't look at him and say, when are you going to get your stuff together? When are you going to open your eyes? When are you going to stop sinning? When are you going to... He had compassion. That was his first reaction. Compassion doesn't mean that we compromise truth and conviction. It doesn't. Sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do for somebody is to speak the truth and love to them and to, to be honest. I think we tend to, the church in, over the years has tend to see people as who's in and who's out. Who's in, who's out, whose side are you on? And that's done great damage to people because broken people, you say, hey, come to church and they think, oh, that's the last place I want to go to. Get judged by other Christians. And it's like, man, that's why our prayer as a church family is that we can be a place for, for broken people to come find hope and healing. We're imperfect and all of us are going to make mistakes along the way, but, but learning, I think part of be, being compassionate on people is being authentic with yourself and realizing none of us have arrived, nor will we arrive this side of heaven. In Joshua I think it's Joshua chapter 5, maybe. If you remember the story, Joshua was taking the children of Israel into the promised land, and there was wars going on with the the, the Canaanites and people who who lived there. And uh, Joshua has this experience with this divine being, which many people say was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And he, he recognizes this captain of the Lord's host, and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And what did the captain of the Lord's host say? I'm not for either one of you. Um, I, I'm, I'm for the Lord's will, and I'm the captain of the Lord's host. What we have to remember is that the Lord is for humanity, not just a few. He is for all peoples. And so Paul said that it was his desire and prayer that his people come to know Jesus. Can people be changed by prayer? Can people, when you desire fervently to see someone's life transformed with the gospel, I believe it. I'm a living, breathing testimony of the power of prayer. I was not raised in church. Um, 
had a pretty checkered background up until the day I became a follower of Jesus myself. And when I was a freshman in college, my parents became followers of Jesus at the age of 50 and 48. And I watched their lives change from a distance. And um, I didn't know my purpose in life. And so when baseball didn't work out for me in college, I grew my hair long and we made a band. And we tried real hard, just like Brian Adams said. Got my first six string. And um, grew my hair long, and, and we would play shows and, and all of that. And one night, we were playing in a, a bar in, down by the Capitol. And I'll never forget this. Um, I was three sheets to the wind, by the way, when this experience happened to me. And I'm playing guitar, we're playing our songs, and I hear a voice say, you should be making music that glorifies Jesus Christ. Uh, what? That's not in our lyrics. Like, what's going on here? And so fast forward a bit. A few years later, I become a Christ follower. And the night of my baptism, I get chills thinking about this. The night of my baptism, um, I wrote a song, and my sister-in-law and I, did it for the church service. It was a Sunday night service. I got baptized. We did the song. And as I put my guitar away, I start walking towards the, the back of the sanctuary. And my dad is, is bawling like a baby. I said, Dad, I'm with you. This is good stuff here. But he was uncontrollably sobbing. And he's told me that his home group over the years from the time that I heard that voice would, to this night, that his home group would go and I'd leave my music equipment at my parents' house, that they would pray over my guitar and my amplifier and anoint it with oil. They were believing, Jack, that, the, that God was going to change my life. <clears throat> and he said, he said, Scott, I prayed so many times that you would make music that glorified Jesus Christ. Amen. And I, all of a sudden I went, wow, I went back to the night that I heard the Holy Spirit calling me to make music that glorified Jesus Christ. I tell you all of that. It's personal to me. Prayer, God answers prayer. The Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Second thing we're going to need to fulfill our life mission individually and as a church is we need to hold to our confession. We need to hold to our confession. Your confession is what you, what you know you believe about Jesus Christ and who He is and who the Father, Son, and Spirit are in our lives and what He's done for us, the confession of our faith. Paul goes on, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be 
saved. When we baptize people here at Novation, we ask them before we take them under, is do you believe in your heart and do you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and Savior and do you want to follow him all the days of your life? And then we, they say yes, and we say, by the confession of your faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and boop, bring them up, new creations in Christ. That's the confession. Our confession is what we, what we believe to be the foundational truths of the gospel, the foundational truths of, of, of Scripture. Um, we, at our Church, we are try, have tried from day one to be a church that majors on the majors, that we hold the fundamentals in the highest place. But on secondary issues such as um, church government, the spiritual gifts, um, worship styles, whatever, you name it, there's a lot of important secondary issues and they, they are very important, but they're not primary things. And, and the primary things unite each one of us. It, it uni- the primary things, and I, I, I believe it's the Apostles' Creed, which unites all believers, past, present, and future, over the main things. What does that creed say? It says, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to the Father, where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, Christ's holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. That is what unites us. That is our confession. The writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I love that. Our confession is Jesus. That He is our confession. He's God's word to you and I, and our word back to God. Our amen. So we don't want to get caught up in secondary issues. Our confession unifies us. Unity is a big deal to Jesus. Here's another thing, though, that we need to hold on to when we're, we're holding on to our confession by how we live our life. That He wants us to emulate Him and to live a life of integrity, to live a life of forgiveness. That when we, when we make mistakes, we accept responsibility. When we fail, we ask for forgiveness. Because none of us are going to not stop blowing it at this side of heaven. But how we live our life needs to line up with what we say that, w- that we believe. As imperfect as that, that is in our lives, and I'm not talking about a list of do's and don'ts and thou shalt's or any of that. I'm talking about inward, fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's, the, that's a, a discipleship passage about learning to... Each one of the fruits of the Spirit is the fruit of God and His character. And He wants that to be in our lives. The third thing to fulfill our individual mission and our, our mission as a church is we need to commit to cooperation. Commit to cooperation. 
The word cooperate means to work or act together jointly for a common purpose, right? The, this thing called church, it's individual, but it's a team sport. The church needs you. The church needs your gifts. The church needs you. And when I say the church, I don't just mean novation. I mean his church. Because we're one simple expression of the local church. Connected, as Brian said earlier, to, the, to his big C church. And I was thinking, when I was going through this, I thought the Texas Rangers just won the World Series last week. Anybody care about that? Okay. Okay. Well, I did care. So I'm going to give you this illustration. Baseball is the ultimate picture of how the church is a team sport because you got nine guys playing nine different positions. If they're not in their position, you get taken advantage of. If you don't play your position right, you get taken advantage of. And each player has to go up to bat, not with his teammates or her teammates, but with his, he gets to go up by himself and do his job in that moment. It could be to swing away for a, a homer. It could be bunt the ball. It could be hit and run. It could be anything. That's the same thing when it comes to church. It's cooperation. All of us collectively together bringing our lives together individually as one to accomplish what he's, this mission he's put us on. I went on the Google and I searched, uh, how does nature cooperate? with each other. And I found this one thing really fascinating. If you ever watch Discovery or the Animal Planet, um, a water buffalo in the, the African desert and areas where they live, a water buffalo uh, has this bird, it's called like the Cattell bird, big white bird with long legs. If you, if you ever remember watching a water buffalo, those birds just sit on the, the water buffalo's back and you don't see the water buffalo trying to, I guess he doesn't have arms, but to see a water buffalo trying to, to shoo off these birds because they're cooperating together. Because what happens is there's these different kinds of insects that burrow into the back of a water buffalo that can cause great irritation, infection, and even something worse. The primary source of food for this bird is the, those very insects that like to burrow into the back of the water buffalo. They need each other. The water buffalo is free from infection, and the bird gets his belly filled every day. And so they work together. We need cooperation to fulfill our, our lives. We need each other individually and collectively. Here's what Paul says. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they... I, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? On the contrary, their voice has gone out into all the earth. He's quoting the Old Testament and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? 
First, Moses says, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will anger you, meaning the rest of the world that aren't Jewish. As Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. Before we're too hard on Israel, as you lear- we learned last week, we're all Israel. We're all disobedient and obstinate in our life at times, and, and, and we just, it's, it's, we're learning not to be disobedient and obstinate. We're all Israel. In chapter 11, as we'll see next week, Paul paints a much brighter future for the Jewish people and all people. And sometimes people want to know, like, well, is this the end times? Let me help you. The end times started when Jesus ascended back to the Father. That's when the end times started. And it's been playing out. How do we know that, that this is the end? Everybody thought COVID was it and wars and all earthquakes. Well, Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, all of that. The one thing Jesus said that you can hang your end times hat on is this. Matthew 24, uh, it's verse 14. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world to all nations and then the end will come. When I was in Bible college some 31 years ago, 30 years ago, um, missiologists, people who study missions and people groups, said in their research there was about 20,000 unreached people groups. That's that, and an unreached people group is marked by they have not heard about Jesus Christ and there is no church, there is no believers. Well, in the last 30 years, that number's gone from like 20,000 down to about 10,000. So a lot of new people groups have been reached in the last 30 years. And the goal of missions, like what Christy read earlier, is, is based on the fact that Jesus said, all authority is mine. Now I want you to go out and share this good news to the ends of the earth. I'm summarizing the Great Commission. And we're doing it. But to do that is going to take great cooperation. And sometimes we, we wonder about Jesus' return. And I know young people, you think, well, I want to get married. I want to experience life. And I hear you. And he doesn't fault you for that. We're human. We're becoming human, right? We're learning. So, but we also have to have a vision, as Christy said, of the future It's going to be so much better when Jesus comes and physically renews the new heavens and the new earth, and there won't be any sin or sorrow or war or disappointment or discouragement. How many know that's what we're talking about? We're not there. We hear bad news every day, and it's part of this life. But you and I can help people along the way experience and know the good news and having compassion on them and through our confession and then cooperating. So much work to do. It's going to take churches cooperating together. I try to reach out to to pastors a lot and, and befriend them and know what burdens they're carrying because 
we're all on the same team. We're, sometimes churches try to build their own little kingdoms, and that's not going to work. We're part of the kingdom together. It takes families cooperating. It takes us as individuals who will take responsibility for the Great Commission with our time, talent, and treasure. It's what it takes. We, we need cooperation. Don't think somebody else can do your role. They can't. God called you to do something. And it's exhilarating when you're walking in the mission of God. Ask Shasta Van Sickle what that feels like. I watch God work in her life and use her medical uh, knowledge to go be a blessing to open doors for people to hear the gospel. Shasta, that wasn't in my notes. Sorry, I just caught you over there. <laughs> Being part of that. Here's, here, people need good news. The world's full of bad news. And I, I want to just real quick challenge people that are, that are it's still in high school or under. Live your life on mission for Jesus now. Don't wait until I'll do that when I'm older. Be bold now. Be bold. Don't live to be cool. Live to share the love and joy of Jesus with people. That's what's most important. And all of us living on on mission. So here's my challenge. Will you either recommit or commit to doing your part? And maybe today you don't even know what any of this is about. You're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian it's okay. You're in the right place. Your family will treat you as family. We want you to believe because it's the best thing in the world is to follow Jesus. And you, 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 you follow Jesus by coming into agreement with him that he's Savior and Lord. We don't make him that by our prayer or filling out a card or any of that. He's already that. We come into agreement with him and say, Jesus, I believe. And I want to follow you. In committing our lives to do our part through prayer, like I'm a big believer in in the power of prayer, we all can do that. We can pray for people and the world and situations. Sometimes I know it feels like prayers are just bouncing off a ceiling and we don't get answers quick enough or whatever. Keep praying. Keep praying. You commit to serving. You commit to loving, sharing. Make the most of every opportunity, as Paul said, that that we have. Life on mission. Nothing like it. When you know your purpose is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you discover your unique way God wants you to live out that purpose, and you do it in the current context of your life, whatever it is, whatever job, whatever season you're in. We're going to take communion. Would you stand with me? As we come to the table this morning, there's bread and, and juice. Jesus said to, to take and eat the bread as a reminder of his body that was going to be broken and that his blood that was going to enter in the, the new covenant in his blood, not the blood of, of animals or anything else, but his, his very blood 
And let's take it this morning, remembering his mission, Jesus' mission, he said, was to seek and save that which was lost. That was us. And now he gives that mission back to you and I. And so as we take communion today, I would just ask you to reflect as we're, we're going to sing a song together, All Hail King Jesus, my favorite worship song. And you're going to come up, grab the bread and the juice, take it back to your, your seat and wait till the song's over and we'll take it together as a family. Go ahead.
Apostle Paul writes, For I received, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and he had given, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul comments on that and he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of the new covenant. May you be blessed as you take it this morning with a deep, sincere understanding of the love that Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit have for you and what he's done for you and what he's given you as a life mission. Let's take the cup. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, to give you his peace this day and forevermore. May we together as individuals with one mouth, one heartbeat, in unity glorify our precious, precious Lord Jesus. Unify us, Lord. Unify marriages, unify families, unify friendships. Lord, that we would not get caught up into the ways of selfishness, but we would be walking in self-denial and other-centeredness, the way of Jesus. Let that, let that be our experience today and, and throughout this week. We love you, Lord so, so much. You're the best. In your name we pray. Amen.